You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is Medusa's first and only English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda. It's Friday, June 19th, and I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition. On today's show, we'll speak to Ben Nimmo, a pioneer of investigations into online disinformation. Ben is the founder of the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, and last year he became the head of investigations for the social media monitoring company Graphica. Earlier this week, Graphica released a new report co-authored by Ben Nimmo and six other researchers about a long-running Russian information operation that's been named Secondary Infection. The group is allegedly responsible for forgeries, election interference, and attacks on Kremlin critics across six years and 300 different websites and online platforms. Before I get to the interview, I want to let listeners know that they can find a hyperlink to this report at Medusa's website, where this podcast is hosted. The PDF is 120 pages long, but don't let that scare you because a lot of it is empty space that surrounds images included in the document, and many of those images are quite entertaining. But if you're not sure if this is for you, listen to my conversation with Ben now and decide then. The study that you've put out, secondary infection has been around for at least six years, you say. How long have researchers been aware of this group's existence? We've been studying this group for just over a year. The exposure started in May 2019 when Facebook exposed 21 assets on its platforms that it thought were part of a Russian operation. And they weren't able to attribute it to a specific entity within Russia, but they had enough confidence in their signals that they were able to say this is operated from Russia. What happened was that they were creating partnerships back then with various research institutions, including um, one that I was working at. And so they shared some of those assets with external researchers and let us have a look at the front end, the, the content that these accounts were posting, so that we could do our own analysis. And so in May and June 2019, the team that I was leading progressively worked out from these, this very small set of assets and gradually realized that they were the tip of an absolutely monstrous iceberg of fake stories, uh, forged documents, fake accounts. And the key thing was that uh, only a very small percentage of the content was actually on Facebook. Far more was on other platforms. And we're not so much talking Twitter and YouTube. We're talking fringe blogging platforms. We're talking medium-sized platforms like Reddit and Medium and Quora. Um, And then a whole range of tiny blogging platforms, everything from a, a site for local news in Austria to a site for local news in Australia. And so by the end of June last year, my team had found several dozen different articles and forgeries created by this operation across at least 30 platforms. And we thought that was pretty substantial. And we'd got enough of a handle on the way this operation worked that we we felt we had a 
we had we had the fingerprints of of the operation and we, we felt we were fairly confident that if we found other stories by that operation we'd be able to say yeah this looks like part of the same outfit the problem was that the way secondary infection worked particularly from mid 2016 onwards was that it only ever used each account that it created once so it would go onto reddit it would create an account within a couple of minutes it would post one article to maybe four or five different subreddits and then it would it would go offline that account would never be used again they wouldn't delete it they just abandon it which meant that for us even if we found one article that we could attribute to secondary infection we weren't then able to use that article to lead us to other ones so it was it was an endless series of burned accounts and and dead end trails in the second half of 2019 various different researchers kept on finding individual stories or small clusters of stories the most significant one was secondary infection trying to inter interfere in the uk election in december 2019 where they leaked genuine documents and managed to get those inserted into the political debate that's the only time we know of that they've ever actually had genuine documents to play with but but the problem was still how do you find other stuff that they've posted and we finally cracked that puzzle in january this year we worked out that there was one mistake they'd made that they weren't aware of which allowed us to move from one story to the next and so between january and april may this year we were identifying literally hundreds of secondary infection stories across literally hundreds of platforms so roughly the scale of the discovery was by january this year the research community had, as a whole had found maybe 40 stories 50 stories by secondary infection spread across maybe 40 platforms we made a breakthrough in january and by the time we published we had over 250 forged documents over 2500 pieces of content spread across more than 300 different platforms so so the research that we've done really sets out this is the scale of the operation and we confirmed that it was running all the way from january 2014 up into early 2020. Are you able to say anything about how you cracked this puzzle or is that that's trade secret for now? There, there was one particular site that they were using which they hadn't quite thought through how they were using it um, and that gave them away. In terms of this cross-platform cooperation, in the report you you thank platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Reddit and others. You know, what exactly did these platforms do? You said that Facebook identified some of the first accounts as sort of suspicious, potentially Russian, you know, influence campaign. Do you, how, do you have any idea how they did that? And and you you know you said that they shared it with select groups of researchers. Is that like a program that that a, you, as a group you have to apply to be included in, or do they just know who's in the field? Like, how does this cooperation actually materialize? It's different with each platform. And one of the fascinating things about secondary infection is that we were working with platforms we'd never had to work with before, like like Medium, like Quora. The Facebook link is that, I would guess in mid-2018, Facebook started creating partnerships with, with particular research organizations, and, and there, there are a few that they cooperate with. In parallel, Twitter was also creating partnerships, and Facebook and Twitter particularly have fairly well-developed now partnerships with different research institutions uh, in, in the industry. So for example, last week, Twitter published a large data set of information operations from China, Russia, and Turkey that it had taken down over the last few months before 
it published the data, it shared the data with the Stanford Inf Internet Observatory, which is which is another research group. And so Stanford were able to do their own research off the side. So th this is a pattern that's developing in the industry, particularly with the larger platforms. One of the interesting things with secondary infection was that there were so many smaller platforms involved that we were we were really creating cooperation mechanisms as we went and it would start we'd reach out to a platform and say we found this activity on your platform we're attributing it to a single operation for these re reasons can we talk about it and and normally the platforms are very glad to have that kind of tip off particularly if you if you give them time to investigate it themselves and think it through themselves do these platforms have the existing wherewithal to sort of address these issues or are some better equipped than others and i mean so because i mean some of these platforms like Twitter, facebook for instance i imagine has has both the resources and sort of the, just the the knowledge and experience that this is happening on their platform that they are sort of prepared to step in and address these things and you know cooperate what about some of the platforms that you said you know you're working with for the first time like were they did was there a learning curve for these platforms we tend to find it you know logically the smaller platforms tend to have smaller teams and and we think that one of the reasons secondary infection was so keen on the smaller platforms was because they probably thought that there would be less of a defensive structure in place so all of the platforms that we dealt with had had their their trust and safety teams or their threat intelligence teams um and in general each team was you know as as you'd hope really really good at spotting the behavior on its platform once we'd given the the the, the first lead so for example in, after the, the trade leaks in the uk so november december last year we shared with reddit um the small number of reddit assets that we'd found that were engaged in that particular operation a few days later, Reddit published a list of about 60 more accounts that it had gone and found, um, which were all high-confidence secondary infection assets. Because once you'd given them the initial tip-off, they were relatively quickly able to go across their platform and find related activity. But what they hadn't had was the, let's say, the, um, the strategic information on, hey, here's this operation and here's how it works. So, so what we found in general with the platforms was that they're very good at knowing what's happening on their platform and very good at seeing what's happening on their platform, but they don't always have the initial lead. So if you go to them with the initial lead and say, here's what we found and here's how it operates, then that gives them... That gives them the place to start. And, and with any investigation, the most important thing is the first lead. Once you have that first lead, you can really pull on it and see what else you get. Why do you think the people behind secondary infection rely so heavily, maybe even exclusively, I'm not entirely sure, but maybe maybe all of this content is from burner accounts? And if that's the case, they seem to be, you know, they're, they're, they're having to decide between potential for impact and... I guess like operational security, making it difficult to to sort of trace trace them to anything. Is the is the calculation essentially just that they're mostly keen on not being detected, and they, they don't even necessarily seem to care as much about impact? And what conclusions can we draw if that is indeed their calculus? To start with, there were so, they they were using a mixture of single use burner accounts and then a few repeat personas, um, most of which they abandoned in mid twenty sixteen. We don't know why they abandoned them, but but we know that they stopped. From about mid-2016 onwards, it was almost exclusively single-use burner accounts. 
the, we, we don't know for sure why they were doing it that way. So some of the things about secondary infection are still big open questions. And one of the biggest ones is what did they actually think they were doing? Because if, if you're creating a new account for every single thing you're going to post, then you're always trying to chase your first follower. And, and you're, you're, you're kneecapping yourself when it comes to trying to actually build up an audience. And one of the big questions is, is why were they doing that? But we think that the reasoning was, if you think about information operations generally, there's a range of approaches you can take. You can, you can run a very aggressive one or you can run a really defensive one. On the aggressive end, you'd have the initial um, generation of the Russian Internet Research Agency where they had some accounts across platforms that were very edgy, very aggressive, um, verbally very, very catchy. They were really good at building up a viral audience. And by the time some of those accounts were taken down, they had maybe over 100,000 followers each. They were really, really good at getting engagement. But, but the payoff is accounts like that get noticed. If you build a big following really fast, people are going to notice that. And particularly these days when we're all looking out for information operations, the researchers and the platforms are going to notice that. So you're making yourself really visible. That means you're going to be inspected. And if you've made one slip up, then your account's going to go down. And if you lose an account with 150,000 followers, you've actually lost quite a valuable asset. At the other end of the spectrum, you have the secondary infection approach where you create a new account for everything you do. And so even if... Let's say you create a forged document um, signed by a U.S. senator, which is something they, they did repeatedly. Let's say that the senator finds out about it and he exposes that document as a fake. Then researchers can go in and find, well, where did that doc document originate and what were the accounts that were spreading it and where, they, where do they lead back to? If everything that you did was with a burner account, then the researchers will be able to find all the instances where that fake letter turned up but they'll never be able to find the full scale of the operation. So you're, you're sacrificing your ability to build an audience, but the payoff is even if one part of your operation gets caught, it's going to be very hard for researchers to find the full scale of the operation. So we think fundamentally secondary infection was designed to be very, very defensive and therefore able to keep on going even if it got disrupted. The report says that one of the most, the one time that they achieved any potential impact or kind of the, the, one of their stories seem to have caught on is when they leaked information regarding the is it it's the, the the British elections is that correct? They somehow got hold of a large file of a UK government readout of trade talks between the UK and the US. So it was basically the UK's internal briefing notes on what the UK has been discussing with the US on trade with America after Brexit. They leaked those online at the end of October 2019 and had no impact at all. They then started using one particular Twitter account to directly at mention politicians and journalists and try and tell them, hey, have you seen that we've got these documents? As far as we can tell, that direct tweeting to people didn't work either. And then it looks like what they did was they created a whole series of disposable email addresses and they started emailing politicians and activists to say the documents are there and it looks like that that direct approach to individuals via email is what then draw people drew people's attention to the leaked documents online and that's when the head of the opposition in the uk 
actually quoted the documents in a press conference to accuse the government of um, planning to sell out the National Health Service. So it, so it was it, it took the operation quite a long time to get this in front of anybody who would actually publicize it. Was it time to co- to coincide with any elections or this is not an election interference issue? We think this is an election interference issue. So the, the UK election was in early December. They originally leaked the documents late October. We believe that emails were sent out roughly in the middle of November. And so towards the end of November is when these leaks came out. So they so they 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 shaped the news cycle about the election for a couple of days when the leaks came out. So so we would consider that election interference. Now, the interesting thing is, as far as we know, that's the only time that secondary infection has ever really had a story go mainstream. And it's also the only time, as far as we know, that secondary infection has actually had a genuine set of documents to leak. Which tells you something about, actually, people on the internet are harder to fool than you might believe. Quite often, when secondary infection was posting forgeries, other users were actually commenting and saying either, hey, this just doesn't look right, or even in some cases, what kind of Putin troll wrote this? So there there was actually quite a lot of resilience in the system. We also have anecdotal evidence that sometimes journalists and even journalists from outlets that have often been accused of propaganda got hold of one of these fake documents and rather than just running a story on them, they actually went to the alleged source of the document and checked, hey, is this real? And as far as we've been able to tell, when they were told, no, it's a fake, they didn't run stories on it. So, so the basic job of fact-checking, fact-checking in journalism is still out there for a, you know, for, a, for a lot of outlets. And so is the lesson here that everything's fine, where the, our media literacy is A-OK, not to worry, or are there other lessons you would recommend taking from from the, that specific instance of, of leaked documents? Is, should, should we be more vigilant than we are? Or like, what's, what's, what's the lesson, I guess? For me, the lesson is we need to talk more about leaks. There's been, if you think about the Russian operations that targeted the US back in 2016, there were really two parallel operations going on. You had the Russian Internet Research Agency, which was running the very aggressive accounts on Twitter and Facebook and, and you know, across social media. But you also had Russian military intelligence hacking and leaking. You had the the DC leaks in the middle of the year. You had the Podesta leaks before the before the election. My assessment is that the the leaks in 2016 had a far more substantial effect on the whole election debate than the Twitter and Facebook trolling. You, you it's very hard to measure exactly what impact the social media trolling had. With the leaks, you can say, for example, that uh, candidate Donald Trump mentioned WikiLeaks over 150 times between the first WikiLeaks drop and Election Day. So he was mentioning it on average five times a day. That's an enormous amount of, of ammunition that one candidate has to bash the other candidate. So if you see what's happened since then, the platforms have genuinely changed the way they're operating in lots of different ways. For example, we see Facebook and Twitter now have partnerships with research institutions to go and find the bad activity online. Um, Reddit announced, after our secondary infection publication, Reddit announced that they'd actually changed certain things about the way their platform operates to make it harder for that kind of operation to work. So whatever else you may say about the platforms on this specific topic of information operations and and, fake accounts, they've done a lot since 2016. What worries me is we don't have visibility on how much people have learned about 
genuine leaks. What happens if between, let's say, now and the US election at the end of this year, somebody, you know, a, a, a hostile state actor, doesn't have to be Russia, gets hold of a bunch of leaks from one campaign and starts pushing them online or offering them to journalists? That's potentially much more impactful as an interference mechanism. And it's much harder to deal with because you can't tell the platforms, hey, it's all based on fake accounts, take them down. If it's been pitched directly to a real journalist, it's, it's a story. And for a, for a journalist, the question has to be, okay, where are these leaks actually coming from? What's the actual news value of them? There may be massive news value there, in which case it's a public interest story. You can't tell the journalist, stop publishing that because it comes from a foreign information operation. You, you can tell the journalist, look, you need to make sure you're conveying the, you know, the context adequately and you need to work out for yourself where you're getting this from. But it's a much, much more complex debate about leaks. And what worries me is we've had so much debate on the social media side. It's not clear how well prepared we are on the hacking and leaking side. I know the cyber colleagues have done a lot of work on it. I'm less sure how much work, for example, political parties and political campaigns have done. It sounds like there's there's no... There's not actually any one answer there because, like you said, it does depend on where the real public interest lies. And there are there there could theoretically be instances where you know essentially a GRU originating campaign that stole information and is now leaking it that that information is just going to kind of be out there because it's potentially of public interest, and that's just kind of how how it goes. That's right, and in in, in a sense, it's back to the the pre-internet days of of interference. You know, you, you find compromising material, you leak it at the most damaging moment. There's a whole range of responses that might be useful on that, but it's a much much more complex problem set. The one thing I would say is that 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 criterion of newsworthiness is an important one. And if you look at a lot of the coverage around the Clinton leaks in 2016, looking back on it, a lot of the content was really, really innocuous. And it was covered because it was leaks during an election campaign. So the news, the newsworthiness wasn't the content, it was the fact. And at that point, you really do need to be asking the journalists why is this actually a story and, and effectively whose job are you doing there? You've written on Twitter that this information operation, you it may be viral or it may have no impact at all, but what matters, you say, is evidence. Can you explain what you mean by that, 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 that evidence should drive writing and reporting here and not necessarily whether or not there was impact? I meant it in the sense that some operations do have impact. Many operations that we've looked at over the years do not. And there are ways that you can actually try and measure the impact or assess the impact or at least approximate the impact. And so, for example, if you, you know, if, if a researcher comes and finds that half the accounts on the Internet are bots, they're, they're automated, not but run by real people. The first question needs to be, well, how do you know? What's your evidence? And, and particularly when you're doing something like that, you have to be able to ask, right, which accounts are you talking about? There's a bit of a trend at the moment of people will do large-scale data analyses and say, out of these 10,000 accounts that we're looking at, we think that 5,000 are bots because look at their follower numbers and look at their look at how old they are and look at their look at the way their their, their username is created. Where actually that that's only an aggregate estimate. You need to be able to say, right, okay, so name them. 
which accounts are you actually talking about? Because, for example, I've seen very recently created accounts which have very generic profile pictures. They have very generic names. They have zero followers. If you kind of look at the mass picture, it would be easy to call that one out as a bot. If you look at the account itself, it's clearly somebody who's posting who's only just created that account. Because you can see that that somebody has, has individually typed each tweet. It doesn't show up anywhere else. Sometimes there are typing errors in there. Wherever you search for that content, this is the only place it appears. And so it might look on the surface that if, you, if all you do is look at the numbers, it may be a bot. As soon as you look at the actual account, it's clearly not one. And so if somebody's going to call out a large number of accounts as bots, then you've got to say, right, name the actual accounts. Don't give us generic figures. Give us the evidence on the accounts themselves. In the same way, if somebody exposes what they say is a large-scale operation coming from Russia, and again, people do get excited about the idea of finding a Russian operation, you've got to ask them, how do you know it's Russian? And in, over the last couple of years, I have had people messaging me to say, I think I found a Russian account. And they, you ask, how do you know it's a Russian account? Because it looks like the Russian accounts that they were running in 2016. The problem is that the Russian accounts that they were running in 2016 were masquerading as Americans. So in fact, what they're handing into me is an account that looks like an American. So again, you have to go back and say, well, what's your evidence for saying that it's a Russian other than that it looks American? Because honestly, quite a lot of Americans look American too. And, and so it, I, I guess it's what I'm trying to do is get people to understand, yes, there are information operations that genuinely have an impact. You know, look at the Russian operations in 2016. And therefore, we have to take them seriously. But also, there are quite a lot of operations that never go anywhere. It's harder to run a successful information operation than you might think. So actually, the thing that we don't want to do is panic. Yes, take it seriously. But part of taking it seriously means if you find an operation, look at how big it is. Also, look if it ever has any impact. With secondary infection, it's a huge operation, more than 300 different platforms over six years. But as far as we can tell, it's only ever had one story that really went mainstream. So it's a persistent threat actor. We need to take it seriously because it has this ability to keep on going. It has shown the ability on one occasion recently to interfere in a national election. So you don't want to say, oh, well, it'll never do anything because it just did. But at the same time, you don't want to say, oh, my God, shut down the Internet because secondary infection. And you don't want to say panic because the more people panic, the more they're going to be easy to deceive. Something that we see with, with information operations time and again in all kinds of different contexts, they try to make people angry or afraid. Because when people are angry or afraid, it's much easier to manipulate them. And so part of what my job is, is, is explaining to people, if you see something online that makes you angry or afraid, the first thing to do is ask, why is somebody trying to manipulate me? Why is somebody running a scare headline? It might just be that they want you to click on the story so they get the advertising revenue. It might be something more sinister than that. But the first thing to do is tell yourself, calm down. You don't have to engage with every scary story you see. And that also applies to scary stories about information operations. The best example is the, the Russian Internet Research Agency was running a few Instagram accounts that targeted the 2018 midterm elections. They got caught and taken down a couple of days before the midterms. So they then spun up a website which says, we are the Internet Research Agency. We've already interfered in the election. We've already thrown your election. There's no point you voting because, hey, we've done it for you. This was in the context that they just had all their accounts burnt or most of their accounts burnt. And so they were trying to create the impression of a successful interference because they'd been unsuccessful. 
it didn't really work, but they were trying to convince people it had worked anyway. So it was it, it was disinformation about disinformation. And if we if we go around saying that every troll operation is massively effective and is going to just change the result of the election, we've just destroyed the credibility of the election ourselves. So we need to have that calm and balance to say, okay, yep, maybe it looks like somebody's trying to interfere in the election. But maybe they only have three followers and two of those look like they're fake. So so just because they're trying doesn't automatically mean they're going to succeed. And the way you dis- determine whether it's actually succeeding or not is you look at the evidence. You look, does it have followers? Does it get amplification? Does it get retweets or shares or likes? Does it get quoted anywhere apart from its own account? There's different ways you can look at how the impact is measured, but you've got to do that impact measurement. Are you able to say anything about how or why you're so confident that that this um, secondary infection group is Russian? To start with, we have the the attribution from Facebook. They've attributed it to, to our actors in Russia. We don't know exactly what the technical signals they were looking at were, but the kind of things they tend to be looking at and that we've seen in other takedowns are things like IP addresses, phone numbers it's registered to, patterns of behavior. There could be many other things. They, they, they haven't tipped their hand on that one. But when you have a technical attribution from a platform, it's, it's a very solid indicator. On top of that, if you look at the, the way this operation was running, all the themes it was focusing on are themes that we know Russian information operations have already targeted. So they targeted the World Anti-Doping Agency in early 2016 after WADA accused Russia of state-sponsored doping. They targeted the Clinton campaign in 2016. Their single biggest target was Ukraine. They attacked Ukraine more than anything else. Their very first target was the Russian opposition. The first posts we have are them attacking Navalny. And then all the, they, they, they had a sudden spike in attacks on the UK after the UK exposed the um, attempted assassination of Sergei Skripal. If you put all those things together, there's only one state which has a geopolitical interest in all those things at the same time. We're not saying that it's a state actor. This could be an independent group like the Internet Research Agency, which has some murky connections to to individuals who are associated with. Right? You know, it could be a cutout in different ways. But the content, the things it's focusing on, the specific language errors they make, all of those are consistent with a Russian attribution, and they wouldn't be consistent with any other origin than Russia. So the other question then becomes: Well, is it a false flag? Is it somebody who's trying to look like a Russian information operation to try and somehow cause trouble elsewhere, you know, cause trouble for Russia? And the answer to that is simply, well, no. The whole point of a false flag operation is to get noticed. The one thing that secondary infection did more than anything else was try not to be noticed. So it wouldn't make sense to say that this is a false flag designed to discredit Russia. So the only logical conclusion is that, yeah, actually the Facebook attribution is correct. And this is a Russian operation. But we still don't know who is running this operation. We don't know what the entity was behind it. Um, There are still some ways that that could come out. One would be if one of the platforms gets a technical attribution. Another one would be actually if Russian journalists find it out. Never, ever forget that the way the Internet Research Agency was initially exposed was because Russian journalists went in there and exposed it. Genuine Russian journalists, we owe them a huge debt of gratitude because they did amazing work to expose this in the first place. And so I would love it if Russian investigative journalists could start digging into secondary infection. 
they've done great work before and if they can find out who was behind this then we'll owe them another big debt You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, an English-language podcast from Medusa. On today's show, we heard from Ben Nimmo, the head of investigations for the social media monitoring company Graphica, about a new report he's co-authored about a long-running Russian disinformation operation called Secondary Infection. If you'd like to read the report, you can visit secondaryinfection.org or check the description of this podcast episode at Medusa. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends, and leave a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening and come back soon. Mm-hmm.